1: Americans commonly fear that young black male at night who they Mm -hmm. don't know Mm -hmm. who's passing them on the street because they imagine that that person is going to rob them. That's the preeminent fear. Now, some of the fear is they'll rob me and kill me. But the preeminent fear is they will rob me, which means that they will take at the most. If you have any cash, most people don't carry cash these days. And if you have credit cards, which you can basically easily cancel. But what they're not, they don't fear that suited white male who is much more likely to steal their life savings mm. and who actually has <laughs> stole parts of their life savings. Yeah. And then also, you know, people, white people who live in suburban neighborhoods fear some sort of black male who's going to come and kill them, but they don't fear the white males in their area who are drinking and driving. Right, And they're much more likely to die as a result of that than some black person coming into their neighborhood to kill them.
0: Ibram Kendi is the author of a brilliant new book called How to Be an Anti-Racist that explains that when it comes to racism, there is no neutral ground. Either you're racist or anti-racist. He says we're in a world of racial inequality where the system produces more policies and more realities that extend those inequalities every single day. The machine is at work. You can't be neutral. By declaring yourself neutral, you're doing nothing to stop the system from producing more inequality. You can only be racist or anti-racist. And black people, too, he says, can be racist. This is work we've all got to do. What's he talking about? And how did he write a great book while also having a family and battling cancer? We'll get into all of that. It's Ibram Kendi on Torre Show. How does one be an anti-racist? Well, I think first and foremost,
1: to recognize the ways in which we've been raised to believe and express racist ideas, that we've been raised to support policies that are actually leading to racial inequity and injustice, and in many ways to recognize that and admit it among ourselves who sort of, how we came to see the world in this way, how we came to see that the problem is not racism, but black people, to give an example. And, and then the next step is is recognizing that there's nothing wrong or even right about any of the racial groups and there's everything wrong with our racist policies um, and those powerful policymakers who are instituting and defending those policies. And for you as an anti-racist to become a part of the struggle against those policies and policymakers.
0: Well, part of the thing that you do in this that sort of will be jarring to some people Mm -hmm. is you're like, there's no neutral. You can't be just like, I'm not racist. it it, there is a machine an institution that is creating racial difference and either you are working against the machine or for the machine but there right but there's no neutral ground
1: there is no neutral ground and and i i wanted to if there's any thing that i hope comes out of the book it's that people recognize that that neutral ground that they've created for themselves um that these neutralities like race neutral policies or someone saying I'm not racist or I can't be racist, that those are all sort of terms of denial. And and that fundamentally we're all either being racist or anti-racist. And it's critical for us, particularly um, those of us who are serious about smashing white supremacy and racism to be anti-racist.
0: What are some of the policies that you look at that are core uh at, perpetuating racial difference now? Oh,
1: where do we even begin? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, obviously in, in the educational system, policies that allow for uh, local property taxes to determine uh, school resources, mm-hmm. when we know there's this gap in income and wealth between the races, uh, obviously the use of standardized testing, um, to open and close doors for for kids, even though we know there's a multi-billion dollar test prep industry that certain kids have access to. And you can just buy your way into college. Precisely. (laughs) Uh, You know, obviously uh, policies that allow for police officers to shoot and kill people and sometimes, most times, uh, get away with if they say they fear for their lives Mm -hmm. uh, because essentially the police are, 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 investigating the police, mm-hmm, <laughs> as opposed mm-hmm. to a truly outside investigative unit that also has the power to fire. Um, you know, obviously, our sort of healthcare system in which we do not have high quality healthcare that's free for all, uh, which creates, which is helps to lead to health inequities and even inequities between insurance rates and thereby inequities and in outcomes. I mean, it's really across sectors. I
0: think also about the war on drugs, yeah. where white people use and sell drugs at pretty much the same rates, if not more. There's no college campus where you wouldn't be able to score pretty much anything you want within 30 minutes. Um, but all the resources are located in the hood, criminalizing those folks as soon as they walk out the door, whether or not they're involved in the local business. Um I think also about the political system, right that where where you know, the rich are able to donate to their favorite uh, party and their favorite candidates, thus increasing their political power, thus increasing their wealth, which increases their political power. There's very few black and brown people who are able to participate in that, and we're just getting crushed by the result of that
1: and even the the way in which the existence of the Senate now. Is, is fundamentally created a, a mechanism in which white people, because they predominate in smaller states mm. like Montana or Vermont or uh, Maine, um, in which they're essentially able to have two uh, senators um, that have outsized power in terms of you know determining who's on our Supreme Court. Uh, you know, determining who's essentially going to run for president, mm-hmm. um, and meanwhile you have states like New York or or, or or California, which have massive amounts of of people of color, and they only have two senators. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that, and then of course the Electoral College as well um, has has made it such that you know again you know these places where you have large population centers of people of color. Uh, their votes are not necessarily mattering as much as the votes of rural whites in swing states.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I I mean, the rise of Trump and Trumpism has brought so much racism and hatred to the surface that was always there but people felt like socially, I have to be a little more quieter, right? right? During the tea party, we talked about dog whistles, right? Which was like, you know, we have to be able to hear through what they're saying. Now they just say the quiet part out loud. How has that changed uh, just some of your perspective to see people become so loud and overt about it over the last couple of years and to be comfortable and proud about that?
1: Well, I think it's a it's a marker of the way in which Trump has been able to convince his constituents who are mainly white to believe that they are the, they are the victims of racism. Mm -hmm. They are the victims of people of color. They are the victims of power and he is their savior. And, and so, you know, because they have been misled into believing that they are being victimized and, and that, people of color who are crying out about the existence of racism um, are actually uh, benefiting from government policy. It it has created this massive polarization, right? Between those who live literally in a different reality, Mm -hmm. In, in a reality in which even though white people are on the higher end of almost every racial inequity in society, some of those very same white people believe that they are the victims of racism. So in other words, people do not assess whether a policy is racist based on its outcome. They base it, and the only way in which these white people can imagine that racist, that that white people are subjected to racism is if they do not assess policy by its outcome. Because Mm -hmm. the outcome of these policies... Are without question, the to the benefit of white people at the expense of of black people. But what the way they sort of assess whether a policy is racist is does it have racial language? And mm. so an affirmative action policy, even though it's reducing racial inequity between the races, they view it as anti-white. right? <laughs> they view it as racist, even though, again, it's reducing racial inequity. right. Um, they view anyone who is essentially speaking out against, racial inequities to be racist even and then pushing just just, just acknowledging
0: race seems to them to be racist
1: yeah heather mcdonald recently wrote an essay in the um in the wall street journal arguing that trump is not racist because the people who are racist are the people who talk about and use racial terminology and talk about racism. And whoever uses racial terminology are the real racist. And since Trump rarely, if ever, uses racial terminology, he's not racist.
0: I mean, this is what you get from the right, that they believe that colorblindness is the zenith and that because we don't talk about race, you're the one, right? There was no, racism was not in the situation until you brought it up, yeah. right? They're like, I well, know, that's not really how it works. It was here before I mentioned it.
1: And, and again, I, you know, I, I don't necessarily—I think that the, the traffickers of these ideas, like a Trump or like a Heather McDonald I actually think they know um, that what they're saying is false. Um, but they also know that the final solution of having a, a racist society that—in which that society and the racism within it is permanent— it's for americans to have a society of racial inequity that they can't even see that they refuse to talk about because if you if you can't see racial inequity and if you and the reason why you don't see it is because you blame the inequities not on racist policies but on the inferiorities of the people who are at the lower end yeah. because of your racist ideas so if you essentially your racist ideas have blinded you for the existence of racism, then you're not going to see racism, let alone challenge it. And so those who benefit from, from racist policies, those politicians who currently have seats because of voter suppression policies, they're going to continue to be able to have those
0: seats. I mean, the notion that black and brown people are criminal and lazy are deeply embedded in Americans, right? And so many, so policies that are, Uh, meant to police them, over-police them, um, are easily demonized because, well, or easily accepted because, you know, well, we know that they're criminals. Like, no, they're not. And you talk about this, that there's just as much crime in this white community as there is in this black community. But you were taught that day by day, by the local news, by Fox, by other places, that the crime happens over here.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the most ironic things about Americans, and this is really Americans of all races, is that Americans commonly fear that young black male at night who they Mm -hmm. don't know, Mm -hmm. who's passing them on the street because they imagine that that person is gonna rob them. Mm -hmm. That's the preeminent fear. Now, some of the fear is they'll rob me and kill me, but the preeminent fear is they will rob me, which means that they will take, at the most, if you have any cash, most people don't carry cash these days, And if you have credit cards, which you can basically easily cancel. So they're concerned about that. And a phone,
0: which would be canceled quickly.
1: But what they're not, they don't fear that suited white male who is much more likely to steal their life savings. Mm. And who actually has (laughs) stole (laughs) parts of their life savings. Yeah. And so, and I think the only way in which that happens, in which you fear... This kid who can take $20 from you, but you don't fear this this, this other person who can take $20,000 from you is racist ideas. Mm-hmm. Is the, the, the preeminent criminals, the people stealing the most money from people in this society are actually not these petty crooks. I mean, I, I mentioned in the book how, I think in the mid nineties, petty crime, you know, petty robbery was Americans lost to the clip of a few billion dollars. Uh, but then when you look at white collar <laughs> robberies, mm-hmm. you're talking about a hundred times more, mm-hmm. right? And and so I, I'm just, it's always fascinating to me. And then also people fear, you know, people, white people who live in, in, in suburban neighborhoods uh, that are lily white fear some sort of, black male who's going to come and and kill them, but they don't fear the white males in their area who are drinking and driving. Right. And they're much more likely to die as a result of that than some black person coming into their neighborhood to kill them.
0: Well, We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door, thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that
1: gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is... Is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen.
0: The, in the middle class context, it seems that they fear uh, property value mm-hmm. loss and a black person making them feel racist. Right, whether or not we say anything. So, when you hire me for your Fortune 500, am I going to make you feel racist, or am I going to make you feel like, no, it's cool, it's all good? You hired me; everything's oh, you right? You voted for Obama; it's all good, right? Like, I mean, that is a core fear that we're dealing with.
1: It is, and I think it's it's reflective of just how deep the heartbeat of racism is denial. That that, that, that denial one, of
0: its existence,
1: denial of its existence, and denial that one is racist. And, and so what a, what a racist does, you know, let's say if a, 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 a white person uh, hires a, a black employee and that black employee within a few weeks calls out that white person who hired them racism, what a racist will do in that situation is deny that what they just said or what they're doing is racist What an anti-racist, someone who's striving to be anti-racist will do is reflect on, is what I just said, is what I'm doing racist? Let me assess my idea based on a common, based on a standard definition of a racist idea. Let me assess, okay, you know what? There is a possibility.
0: Within that, am I perpetuating difference? Because yeah. for so many people, racism means, did I say something that would hurt your feelings that's based around race? We're not talking about interpersonal racism. We're talking about something much bigger.
1: Precisely. So M, is it the case that there is a disproportionately low number of people of color in my unit? And, and what, is, what is the reason for that? You know, I've been led to believe that, that these people of color aren't qualified. Is that a racist idea?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So so he just or she just pointed that out. And maybe, maybe there isn't wrong. Maybe there isn't anything wrong with black people. Maybe it's my policies. Maybe you know we're Lily White because we've been hiring based on who we know. Maybe we've been hiring within our white networks. Maybe there's something wrong with us and our policies, and not wrong with people of color. So that's what an anti-racist would think. And do, and therefore change their policies. But a racist is just gonna deny it. They're gonna get upset at the the person of color who brought it up. Mm -hmm. They'll probably uh, put that person on probation Mm -hmm. without that person knowing it. And eventually that person will get let let go because they don't want anything in their space that calls, that that, that touches at that sore spot of denial.
0: But part of what you're getting at black people can also be racist yeah how so i think that what's critical
1: for us is going back to what we talked about earlier there's no middle ground Mm -hmm. and so this there's this notion that there's this sort of place in which you have anti-racist and racists that are only white Mm -hmm. (laughs) in other words Black people can't be racist,
0: because, so I guess because, we
1: just get a pass. Because
0: we don't have power is the typical argument. Yeah,
1: and and what's ironic is I don't think, I think we have done a great job, particularly over the last few decades, recognizing the way power works at the highest levels, particularly racist power in that way. But what we have not talked about as much has been the power of every single individual person to resist, to resist racism Mm -hmm. and how you have some black people who view the problem as black people. And so therefore they spend their time going after other black people as opposed to racism. And so in in other words, they're because of their racist ideas, because they think there's something wrong with black people, they use their power They use their ability to go after black people. And then some of them recognize the ways in which they can become the pawns of of racist white power Mm -hmm. and essentially, you know, move into positions as the black person who replaced the white person who was racist. And then they execute the same racist policies against black people they justify them with the same racist ideas about black people
0: but because it's coming out of a black face precisely
1: and though the white people who who empowered them who put them in that position knew yeah that oh they they can't accuse the company of being racist because we have a black face right and so the you know white supremacists and white racists have manipulated black people based on this notion that black people can't be racist because black people don't have power. So they, then they're like, okay, you know what? Black people can never be racist, but white people can. So let me insert black people into all of these positions, which will then stymie the anti-racist movement because we're we're not looking at these people as what they are, racist. And I just wanted to emphasize very quickly yeah. that black people collectively have the power to resist. Mm -hmm. And the whole reason why black people were involved in the undermining of chattel slavery, in the undermining of Jim Crow, in the undermining, at least for a time, of mass incarceration was because they recognized that power. They used that power to organize themselves and to challenge racist policies for us to not recognize historically and currently our power to resist. Is essentially to develop more of a slave mentality mm. in other words the only people who do not have power are not enslaved people enslaved people when we were enslaved meaning we were people who were enslaved by force and violence but we were still resisting so not i'm not even talking about enslaved people but literally people who are slaves. In other words, they're oppressed Mm -hmm. and not resisting. Mm -hmm. Those are the only people who are slaves. Mm -hmm. Those are the only people who don't have power.
0: But you talk about also you unlearning racism in a speech that you gave in grade school that you're now embarrassed to look back on. So we don't have to go as far as Ben Carson and Candace Owens to be black racists, right? Like, I mean, we, can accept these ideas of black inferiority, black criminality, and thus be racist ourselves?
1: Yeah, I mean, I grew up in the 80s and 90s um, in a black middle-income home. And my parents simultaneously thought that the fundamental problem was racism and black people.
0: <laughs> okay, um, so and I, I laugh, but they're not alone. There's so many people yeah. who agree with them,
1: and and but specific segments of black people, mm-hmm. yep. and, and so I talk about is this my, is
0: this the Chris Rock thing? There's yeah. black people and there's niggers yeah. and like don't yeah. Right, yeah.
1: So like specifically poor black people. Mm-hmm. There's something wrong with poor black people.
0: It's in their character.
1: Yeah. There's something wrong with black youth. Mm-hmm. There's something wrong with black women. There's mm-hmm. specifically something wrong with young. Uh, black mothers who are single. Mm. Um, and, and, and what this means is when we say that there's something wrong with black youth that we don't think is wrong with white youth, that we don't think is wrong with youth, essentially what we're doing is we're we're, we're creating a racial group and then demonizing it. Mm-hmm. And any time we racialize a group, whether that group is youth, women, a uh, class group, an ethnic group, a... Uh, a group of sexual orientation, meaning black gays as opposed to gays, we are essentially creating a racial group. And then anytime we say that there's something wrong with a racial group, we are saying a racist idea. And what happens when we say there's something wrong with a racial group? We do not look for the policies that are actually harming that racial group. So in the 90s, when people were saying, including black people, that there was something wrong with black youth like me, that we were super predators, that we were hypersexual, that we didn't value education. They were not looking at the ways in which the policies that they were supporting, like the majority of members of the CBC supported the crime bill, mm-hmm. was actually leading to our mass incarceration. They were not looking at the ways in which police officers kept stopping and frisking us. They were not looking at the ways in which, actually, the reason why you had this growing percentage of, of black children being born in single-parent households wasn't because young, teenage black girls were having more babies. It was because... Um, married black women over the course of the 20th century were having less babies. Mm. So you had this precipitous decline in the number of married black women having babies, which is why the percentage of babies being born to single parent households rose. But instead of literally actually analyzing the data and actually saying this was a good thing, you know, these women who took feminist ideas in the eighties and seventies and, and seriously, you know, decided, you know what, I'm going to have more reproductive control of my body. I'm going to have less kids. Instead of us seeing that as a good thing, we saw that as a way to demonize young black girls um, and say that there was something wrong with them. As opposed to providing those girls who did in fact have have babies when they're young with resources and opportunities.
0: And And you talk about the notion of assimilation as racist, or at least the expectation that, one should assimilate as a way Mm -hmm. to get beyond racism, that in and of itself is racist.
1: Yes, I mean, anytime we standardize any racial group, and so that's whether, let's say, white people standardize white people and say our culture and our ways of life um, are superior, and so therefore who who isn't acting like us culturally and behaviorally must act like us, in order to be human, in order to be civilized, you know, anytime we're 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 doing that, we are essentially expressing assimilationist ideas. We are saying that you know what, black people are capable of becoming human, and if human means being white, and so let's assimilate them, let's civilize them, let's develop them, um, when in fact there's nothing wrong with black culture, right, um, and or black cultures, and and there's nothing wrong with the way in which these people act. And what's actually the problem, which actually is 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 causing issues, is their lack of resources and opportunities. So they don't need to be civilized. They only need resources and opportunities like
0: any other group of people. Um, your previous book, which was also amazing, Stamped from the Beginning, mm-hmm. um, you talk about the beginning of racism in America. Because this is a constructed thing, right? And it stood out to me. You talked about, and I want you to tell this story about how it became... The law in very early America that non-slaveholding white men had to guard and protect uh, the slaves. Right. So if you were if you ran away, they so you mandated a free police force. Yep. The rich did, but this created this stratification where you, well, if you're white, you're not at the bottom because you're guarding other people who are below you. So even though you're poor, there's somebody beneath you, which then gives them. Uh, a certain value to their whiteness, even though they don't have money? Yeah, Du Bois calls it the wage of whiteness.
1: Um, and and essentially, yeah, in 1600s, in the 1600s, particularly when there was still a, a large number of what were known as white indentured servants who worked pretty much alongside enslaved Africans. And what was happening because they were walking, working alongside each other, because they were brutalized in very similar ways, they resisted. They started to resist together, and since together they made up the vast majority of the uh, colonial populations in, in 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 colonies like like Maryland and Virginia and New York, of course, slaveholders. And those who held those indentures were like, you know what? We have a we have a powder keg on our hand. How do we essentially separate these two working classes? And and the way in which they they went about separating the two of them was essentially ensuring that poor whites or white indentured servants would become basically the armed troops of, of racist power. And and so they essentially created all these laws and mechanisms that disarmed enslaved Africans and free Africans and armed white people that essentially made it such that any black person, for instance, could not harm or whip or even hit any, quote, white Christian, while white Christians could do whatever they wanted to, to black people. And so by the nature of being white, you were given all of these privileges that connected to, to white slaveholders. Even though you were poor. And so some of these white people decided you know what? Our existence and our health um, and our well being as a people is tied up not with working with enslaved Africans to smash these wealthy white slaveholders, but it's to connect with these wealthy white slaveholders. And then what was most critical was you had these white indentured servants who began to aspire to be one of those wealthy white slaveholders. Just how now you have a working class white person in Iowa who believes that one day they will be Donald Trump.
0: Everybody in America thinks they can become rich one day. I can get that shark tank idea, I can hit the lottery. Something will happen, right? Maybe I'll get discovered like Marlena Dietrich and say you're an actor and then suddenly you'll be rich.
1: So then when we think about undermining policies that benefit billionaires and millionaires, these poor and working class and even middle-income people oppose those because they're not thinking about what's best for them from their own class position because in their mind, they're one day going to be rich. So they're like, why would I... Right. Strive against policies that are going to quote harm me
0: when I get to be rich.
1: Exactly, and the likelihood of them becoming rich is the likelihood of me, you know, becoming white, becoming white, <laughs> or or making the NBA and crossing up and dunking on LeBron James. But people <laughs> believe it's it's going to
0: happen. It's going to happen. I believe in you. I believe in you. It could happen. God, um, you know, you talk about really sort of dismantling the white gaze in your own self in this and that is so powerful and when I mean I recall for me when the older guys in high school were like you know try to explain what that was and how you know we don't behave based on the white gaze and it was so liberating and you talk about I'm no longer policing my every action around an imagined white or black judge trying to convince white people of my equal humanity, trying to convince black people I am representing the race well. And you're just giving yourself the freedom to perform blackness the way you want to mm-hmm. without the responsibility of the way other people see you. Yeah, and I think that's, it's it's very
1: liberating because in many ways, black people were taught two different things. First, we're taught that how we act in front of white people
0: mm-hmm.
1: is going to determine their racist ideas. In other words, if we act in a stereotypical manner, then that's gonna reinforce their racist ideas. Mm-hmm. So therefore, it's incumbent upon us to quote, represent the race well and act in a positive manner. And so therefore, it, for those of us who've come to believe that when we go into these white spaces, we're constantly concerned about how we're acting because we don't want to let the race down. And then simultaneously, the black other black person in that space is assessing us to see how we're acting, to see if we're representing them or the race well. And so we're, we're so concerned about what everybody else thinks about how we're acting, which is stripping us of our freedom to be ourselves. And the irony about this all is acting in this sort of upstanding manner that defies stereotypes has actually never had a productive impact in undermining white racist ideas Mm -hmm. because historically what's happened when 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 people act in this manner this upstanding manner like barack obama people white people aren't like oh my god like you know, black people are no longer lazy. Black people actually speak well like like Barack Obama. You know what they say? They call those types of people extraordinary. Right. right. They're exceptional. Right. They're not like those ordinary inferior Negroes. And why
0: don't the rest of you be like him?
1: Exactly. And then what they also do, there's they use their they basically engage in all sorts of violence against those black people. Yeah. To to because they're so threatening to them. Um, and, 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 and then, and so I think it's absolutely critical for Black people to recognize that what makes the racial groups equals is not Black people acting in an upstanding manner. What makes the racial groups equal is the imperfections of all of these different racial groups. That actually, if we truly had an anti-racist society, we would actually see equality in negativity, So, for instance, when I see a black person acting in a lazy manner, I'd be like, you know, what? there are white people who act that way, too. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to be like, oh, you know, he's representative. He's not or she's not representing the race. Well, I'd be like, that's one individual.
0: Well, this is this cuts to sort of the core of racial uh, sort of racialized thinking. Right. That the things that we do are part of the group and representative of the yeah. group, yeah. right? Only, Of course, only, as you said, the negative things, right? Not necessarily, some, some of the positive things, right? They're all athletic, right? You know, they could jump so high, yeah. right? Whereas white behavior is unique, mm-hmm. right? And each white person stands for themselves yeah. rather than for the group.
1: And I think, and am and what I'm also stating is that all people think this way. And so it's not just white people. And so it's- That we have these ideas too. Yeah, when we turn on the TV and and see a black person who's acting crazy and we feel as if, you know what, they're bringing down the race, they're essentially doing the same
0: thing. That's a racist idea.
1: Yeah, we're not allowing that person to just represent themselves. We also know though, and it's absolutely the case, that some white people are going to look at that, those negative ideas and be like, you see, that's the way black people are. But- Mm -hmm. I think what I'm trying to get at is it is not the responsibility of black people to convince and persuade white people that we're equal. Mm. It is the responsibility. And because to say that it is our responsibility is to suggest there's some truth mm. in notions of black inferiority. In other words, they, they think that way about us because we act that way. Mm. And to suggest there's some truth in notions of black inferiority is to suggest racist
0: ideas. And it adds yeah. an extra burden to us, right? That we exactly. we are, right, we already walk around with stereotype threat aware that people think, "Oh, black people are not as intelligent, so I have to do this test with the weight of their expectations on my shoulder." Yeah. Whereas Johnny and Josh are just doing the test. They're mm-hmm. not representing their races, but I and this has an impact on performance. And mm-hmm. every, every time you walk into a job and you're like, I have to prove to all these white people that black people are not X way. Yeah.
1: That's an extra job that you're doing. It is. It is. And the irony is you, you go through and have that, all that energy to sort of act in this upstanding manner. And then they're like, Oh, you know what? Black people aren't lazy. But then what happens? The next black person who's having a lazy day <laughs> acts lazy. And then what happens? They're like, well, black people are lazy. Right. So you've done all of that. Right. 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 And it doesn't even have any effect because what's going to happen is they're going to see black negativity because black people are human. And so this idea that somehow we can be perfect and, you know, in front of white people is an impossibility. And and, and so putting that burden on ourselves uh, as if it's going to have an effect. And, you know, I think it's just is in many ways. Not necessarily helpful. Helpful to the race and certainly helpful to us as individuals. But
0: I still don't want to eat watermelon in front of white people.
1: (laughs) Is that wrong? I think you should feel comfortable doing whatever you feel like doing in front of white people. (laughs) And if they think that, you know, all black people eat watermelon, that means there's something wrong with them.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, I would love that. But you talk in the book about love and exemplariness is not the answer. And quite often that seems to be what people think that we need more extraordinary Negroes and more love in terms of interpersonal understanding. That's not the road.
1: No, because you have so many people who are in relationships with people of another race who simultaneously have racist ideas about that race. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's not, I mean, you know, there are, obviously, you know, they're interracial couples who both are anti-racist about the other person's race, but then you also have interracial couples in which that's not the case. Just like you have interracial friendships that are based on this mutuality of anti-racist ideas about the other race, and you have friendships in which that's not the case, in which this is my African-American, <laughs> mm. right? And, and so I, I think that, you know, this notion that, and people say that to me all the time. You know what? The way we saw racism is we just get a bunch of, you know, people of different races together so they can see they're the same. Just come together and, and talk. And, you know, if they just come together and talk and recognize that they're so similar, then everything will be okay. You know, as if people don't come together every day on the train, the train, right right? <laughs> right, right. You know what I mean? As if people don't come together on TV, people are regularly coming together. What happens is, How the ideas that they bring to those conversations, the the, the ideas that they have, um, the racist ideas that they have, cause them to interact with people in a particular way that reinforces their racist ideas.
0: Recently, a white female police officer in Dallas um, was convicted of murdering Uh, someone who she had shot and killed in his own apartment, not breaking any laws, by the way. After the conviction, the uh, victim's brother made a point to give her a hug. And then the black female judge gave the uh, convicted defendant murderer a hug. What do you make of those two actions?
1: And, you know, I think they also, particularly the brother, stated that he forgave the, the white um, woman police officer. And so for him, that hug was a part of his act of forgiveness. I think that when we, you know, and then obviously we've been debating that. And, and I think that there's two ways to understand forgiveness. There is a release of resentment. Like, I no longer resent you for what you did to my brother, in the case of uh, the brother. And then there is a, a, there's, there's pardoning. In other words, to forgive is also to pardon. Um, do I think that Black people sh- should not sit around resenting white racists for what they've done to us? yes. Because obviously we know all of the psychological and emotional effects of carrying resentment around. Do I think that black people should pardon white people for their racism? I do not. Because literally to pardon people who are unrepentant and who even, I mean, who who yeah literally are unrepentant and who are likely to do it again is literally self-destructive.
0: Do you see a difference or do you see a difference between the brother... Reaching out to her in this way, and the judge reaching out to her oh, in this Oh,
1: without way. question. I, I mean, I, I thought a lot of people are talking about the brother. And again, I don't really know whether what he was doing was an act to release repentance. In other words, I'm sorry, resentment. In other words, it was not for her, it was for
0: him. Right, right, right. If
1: it, If he was doing that for her... In other words, I am seeking to tell you, I forgive you and pardon you so you feel better Mm-mm. as opposed to I am hugging you so I can release resentment so I can feel better. Fine. Right? If he was doing the second one, thats I don't see a problem with Fine. that. Fine, yes. But the judge, that's not something I've ever seen when a black person received- Never. <laughs> 10 years- Never. For, I don't know of a time which a black person's only received 10, ten years, years for murder. Murdering someone. But that's not something that I've seen um and and so i was actually quite shocked yeah um more so shocked about that i don't even know whether what she was doing um
0: i don't either i've never seen that (laughs) i i didn't even know the judge to come down off the bench to come and touch the uh, i mean i feel like deep within that is this sense of like white women they're essentially good and innocent and not that bad. And like, you know, we know this happened, but you're, I mean, we think about the power of the white woman's tears.
1: Yeah. And I, I think I, I think I wrote about that in the book. Um, yeah. Actually, do you want me to read that part? Um, sure. Really quickly, please. Um, and. So. I, I write in the gender chapter that sexist notions of men as more naturally dangerous than women, since women are considered naturally fragile in need of protection and racist notions of black people as more dangerous than white people intersect to produce the gender racism of the hyper dangerous black man, more dangerous than the white man, the black woman, and the pinnacle of innocent frailty, the white woman. Mm. No defense is stronger than the frail tears of innocent white womanhood. No prosecution is stronger than the case for inherently guilty black manhood. These ideas of gender racism transform every innocent black male into a criminal and every white female criminal into Casey Anthony, the white woman a florida jury exonerated in 2011 against all evidence for killing her 3-year-old child white women get away with murder and black men spend
0: What does eating healthy mean to you? T H R I V E market dot com slash Tore Thrive market dot com slash Tore.
1: And I mean, in many ways, she got away with murder by mm-hmm. only getting 10 years.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, yes, she's getting 10 years, but everything is relative, right? I mean, she could have went to jail for 99 years. Yeah. And and the only reason why I see that she only got 10 years was because she was a white woman and a cop. Yeah, And if she would have been anything else, <laughs> she would have probably been in jail for three or four times as long.
0: Um, to Let's talk about you personally, right? Because you write in the book about dealing with cancer and, and, and fighting through that. And I cannot imagine what the journey you've been through with that and continuing to work and be a family man at the same time. Can you take us through some of that? Like what happened, how you survived that whole journey, how you maintained a certain sort of human wholeness and was able to continue to work on this book and your work at a, is it an American university yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, and you have one, you have one child yes. and a wife who's, who's a doctor. So she's busy quite often. Like, how, how'd you do it?
1: Well, I mean, I was, I was diagnosed with um, stage four colon cancer um, last January when I, I think I had already written about five chapters of the book and obviously i was completely shocked i didn't really have any risk factors and you know i was young i was 36 um or 35 years old and and so i was just completely shocked that you know i was diagnosed with a disease that kills 88% of people in 5 years mm. and 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 so i in many ways decided that you know i was probably likely to die but you know i'd like to do all that i could to fight against this and and i also decided that that i wanted to finish how to be an anti-racist before i died and and so i decided to um continue writing the book while i was undergoing chemotherapy and i did 6 months of of chemotherapy and and typically, all I was doing during that period was sort of dealing with the symptoms and and pretty much finding the energy and the ability to
0: write um, the rest of this. Aren't book. you extraordinarily tired when you're going through chemo? Yes. Um, so how would you have the energy to write?
1: So I mean, I um, would take naps, <laughs> and and so um, so I would take naps and write for a little bit and then, you know, presumably take another nap.
0: Was Um, there a driving sort of sense of purpose of like the ultimate deadline is coming. Like we have to go.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was, like I said, I was determined to finish this book and in many ways it helped because I spent a lot, I spent time while I was undergoing chemotherapy, thinking deeply about the book and not thinking deeply about, my situation, which of course, at times gave me the ability to to sort of think past my condition
0: had an escape
1: um and yeah, so it it really provided that escape and um and so somehow uh, you know I was able to do six months of chemo In, almost immediately, the tumors began to shrink um I had surgery um last at the end of the summer last year and had two surgeons. It was a massive surgery. And when they dissected what they thought were sort of the remaining tumors, they didn't find any cancer cells. So they, they think that I had a com- what's called a complete response, meaning the, the chemotherapy basically killed all of the cancer cells and the multiple tumors that I had. Um, and so, you know, since then, of course, I've been, um, getting scanned regularly to ensure that there's not a reoccurrence because that's part of the fear when you have such a serious cancer that even if somehow you're able to <laughs> get rid of the body of it, that there's a pretty good likelihood it will come back. Um, so we've been doing that, but then also while I was writing on racism and cancer, um, you know, I began to sort of recognize the similarities in the way in which we should be treating racism. In other words, that we should be treating racism in the same way we treat cancer. How's that? And, and first and foremost, if I just denied that I had cancer, the most serious stage, then I would not have undergone treatment. Or if I said, you know what, I do have this, but I refuse to undergo treatment because it's painful, you know, what what would have happened? The cancer would have been likely to kill me. And in in, in the ways in which racism is literally killing this country, in the way in which people are literally, um, are are being killed or literally walking dead, literally living in a different sort of uh, sphere of reality. Um, in which they're the victims of racism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think first and foremost, I had to accept that I had this extremely serious illness. And then I also had to accept that in order to, to become healthy, I'm gonna have to go through a tremendous amount of pain. And somehow Americans want to heal America racism without pain, and that's impossible. And then ultimately, I the, the doctors did a local, uh, I should say a local and a systemic treatment which is precisely how we can heal the american body of racism that we can literally go in and surgically remove racist policies that that um and and then we could literally flood the body with anti-racist policies that reduce racial inequity that prevent the reoccurrence of racial inequity and and then after we have if we somehow have able to um to eliminate the sort of cancer cells of inequity, we can watch very closely the body to ensure that no that there's no reoccurrence. We can essentially fight racism uh I should say metastatic racism in the same way we fight metastatic cancer.
0: Mm. do you think perhaps well, is there a racialized reason why you got cancer, why black people get? cancer is there is, is is racism part of that
1: so i mean I, I think doctors have been showing in recent years and medical researchers have been showing in recent years the sort of the effects of racism on one's physical health uh, you know i think they've been showing that particularly as it relates to black women and and how they're much more likely to Uh, miscarry or even die in in pregnancy than than white women. They think part of it has to do with the lack of good care that they're receiving, but another part of it could be they're suspecting the stress of of racism itself. Um, I think one of the things that my friends told me was that, you know, I spent years when I was sort of researching for Stamp from the Beginning, literally taking in some of the most horrific things that have ever been said about Black people, day in and day out, year after year, you know, taking it in, not really sort of reflecting on what I'm sort of taking in, not really um, talking to people about the pain of what I was experiencing. And so they think, you know, some people have told me, and I actually wrote about this in, in How to Be an Antiracist, that, that you know, writing that book and you know, taking in all of that trash that has been said about black people, um, you know, could have been part of this. I don't know. Um, th- but certainly a possibility.
0: This has left you with a new sense of determination. How's that? What's that?
1: Well, I mean, you know <laughs> any any day, you know, I could feel something and schedule a an appointment with a doctor. And that doctor, uh, a week later, tell me I have stage four cancer. And that can happen to any of us. Um, And then simultaneously, when I look out at our society, and I, I look at the fact that it was racist ideas that convinced people to vote for Donald Trump. It was racist policies, particularly voter suppression policies, that allowed it such that Trump could win some critical swing states. And so essentially racism... Has given birth to to Donald Trump. Um, when we look at the ways in which white nationalists and white supremacists are spreading all over Western Europe and across the world, when we see the way in which they're they're refusing to admit the existence of things like climate change that are reaping havoc, when they're you know bringing the world closer to things like a nuclear holocaust, when you when when you see in which they're resisting Medicare for all. Um, you 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 recognize just how many people are dying <laughs> mm. as a result of racism and and so it becomes very urgent for me
0: you you talk about it do you think perhaps racism is doing what it's supposed to do that it is not an aberration but this is the way we want the system to work
1: oh without question i mean you know it's not an aberration that republicans during obama's presidency his first sort of tenure, and this was immediately after he won, began to recognize that the demographics of the country and the ideology of the country was shifting away from them. That essentially they did not have the votes anymore, particularly the win the White House. And so it 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 it, it did not it, it so then they decided, okay, what happens when you don't have the votes? You figure out new ways to suppress the votes. And and so they were able to target um, the Voting Rights Act. They were able to get the federal preclearance lifted, and then they flooded all of these states with these new voter ID laws, and, and 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 they've purged voters from from roles in key states like like Georgia and Ohio, and and that was that was essentially how they were able to maintain power in Congress and ultimately win the White House. This, but then they didn't just. Do that, they had to create a justification, mm-hmm. and that justification was voter fraud. And and when 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 people researched voter fraud and found that it was a, a most non-existent problem, right. they didn't suddenly say, "Oh, well, we didn't realize that." No, they pushed harder and deeper, and because they knew that that was just a justification that that black and Latino voters were fraudulent, that they were corrupt, which is an old racist idea. And and then when when their supporters began consuming these ideas in becoming hateful, in getting their guns to attack people of color as voters because they felt that they were corrupting the system, they didn't say, oh, no, 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 don't, you know, stop. No, if, if anything, they, they supported that. Mm. And, and, and so that was all by design. And I think racism has always been by design.
0: What do you want white people to do? White people are listening to this and say, I want to be anti-racist. What do you want me to do? You want me to quit my job and give it to a black person? Like, what, do you, like, what, do
1: you, what do you want from me? Well, I mean, first for people to stop being in denial that they're not racist, that the, that the, that the, that the term not racist is, is, is the sound of denial. And then for them to, to really think through how they can be a part of the struggle against racist policies. So whether that's literally joining an organization that is fighting racist policy or if they have a of a job in which um they don't really have that much time but they don't have they but they have quite a bit of money they can donate to those organizations which is is extremely critical and so you know find either the time or the money find some level of resources that you have to give to the struggle against racism that is essentially the purpose of being anti-racist because we, of course, people who are striving to be anti-racist are literally striving to, to undermine racism in this country.
0: And what do you want black people to do who are like, hey, I'm not racist, I'm black. And you're like, well, you may have internalized some racist ideas. Well, I think that for black people to really
1: recognize that this notion that we can't be racist because we, can't, we don't have power. Literally strips of of strips us of our power, and 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 literally, when you say black people don't have power, you're saying that black people are slaves, mm. and when you say white people are all powerful, you're essentially rendering white people as gods, and by creating this scenario in which essentially white people are all powerful, there's nothing black people can do. You're stripping you of your ability to essentially figure out. How you can be part of the struggle, mm-hmm. because if you're saying that there's, you know white people are all powerful, we just have to wait on white people to make changes, <laughs> then essentially you're you're making sure that racism is permanent. at the same time, you're crying about its existence. And so fundamentally, for black people too, to be a part of those organizations, to support those organizations, to support those policymakers and people who are challenging racism, that either we are challenging racism, or being racist. There's no in-between.
0: Thanks to Ibram for a great interview. Definitely pick up his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And thanks to you for listening. Torrey Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. I'm on Twitter at Toray and on Instagram at Toray Show. Please leave a review on iTunes. It really helps. And tell your friends about the show. Toray Show is written by me, Toray, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall, And our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. We're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back next Wednesday with another amazing guest. Because the man can't shut us down.